I think that there's an opportunity usually uh, with a donor to ask them what's the right amount and, and have that conversation. And, you know, I might say something along the lines of, Tom, I don't want to be presumptuous here. I mean, personally, I'd love to have you fund this in a million dollars, but I have a feeling that that's not the right level for you. Welcome to the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast. Whether you're a seasoned professional or a first-time fundraiser, we have the advice you need to take your next step towards major gift mastery. I'm your host, Tom Dauber, president of Abundant Vision Philanthropic Consulting. Welcome to part two in our conversation with fundraising veteran, Dr. William Bartolini. When we last spoke, you were sharing some of your thoughts on emerging trends you're seeing in fundraising. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this, that I have a couple concerns about philanthropy today. And uh, one of them is that um, uh, politicians really want to um, score points by degrading nonprofits, reducing tax incentives. Yes. It's very easy to make the nonprofit the bad guy. And that concerns me, as well as misinformation. You know, just like a restaurant can have their business hurt by false or fake bad reviews, uh, the same can happen to a, a nonprofit. And the public's trust and the organization's reputation are just so important. Now, I see some really good trends, though, if I may. Yeah, please. Okay. One is that donors are a lot more sophisticated. There's a lot more information out there. And so they are making better decisions. And if we are doing our jobs, we should be uh, utilizing that to help focus their efforts on the cause that's important to us. Yes. You know, I mentioned the uh, young professionals being concerned about social justice and that they have more passion. Technology, some might say it's good or bad, but I think it's really helpful. Uh, no, no more sorting of the uh, uh, cards, you know, over a glass of wine over a week uh, in your uh, living room floor. But rather, um, you know, there's much more information, which is one of the trends that we're making decisions based on more information and better information. And then I'll, I'll just one other one, I think. And that is, um, you know, we've had good, strong annual fund work. Major gifts have come into their own, if you will. And uh, have uh, there have been a number of people that have built their, um, their careers on major gifts and have done a great job there. Uh, but there's a new focus on that middle donor. And I think that's a good trend as well, something that would be uh, really helpful to the profession of building philanthropy uh, that I think is really important. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. When, I, uh, when I'm talking to my coaching clients, mm -hmm. it's not unusual for me to discover that there's this whole group right in that middle segment that hasn't been asked to step up yet. Yeah. And I, I often find that that's a great kind of area for low hanging fruit and, and, and very quick progress is mm -hmm. looking at those 
those mid-level donors that you just haven't thought to ask for for more just yet. Right, right. And there's been, you know, pressure on, oh, we have to build our major gifts program. Well, yes, we do, but we also need to not leave behind our middle donors, for lack of a better term. Well, right. I recall that being a great concern to me at one point in my career because I was I was being encouraged to not talk to those people. But at yeah. the same time, the uh, the campaign plan that I had required them uh, to make a, a large number of gifts and there was no one to solicit them. And I was it was it was quite the conundrum uh, to say, OK, well, you we need. I don't know, 5,000 gifts of this level, but this this isn't in my job description. So who's going to do the work? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, goodness. Wow. Those are those are some great observations. So, so Bill, I want us to, to spend a little time talking about your academic pursuits, because in yeah. addition to your fundraising career, you also have a PhD in in that field of study, and very few fundraisers have their doctoral degrees. You know, uh, what is it that made you decide to pursue a terminal degree? I chuckle because some might say that I'm a glutton for punishment. But if we come back to what I said earlier about uh, I'm fascinated by learning mm-hmm. and wanting to know things, yes. and especially if there's something I don't know. Yeah. We were in our very first ever comprehensive campaign at Kent State University. Yes. And I felt as if I needed balance in my life. I needed some things that I could do that would uh, replenish me. And so I started taking classes. And I took, you know, one class and then another class. And pretty soon, uh, because I wanted to learn more about psychology and sociology, pretty soon it seemed like those were kind of coalescing and there was potential to really turn this into a doctorate. And so within the Department of Communications uh, came up with a plan to really take a look at philanthropy and fundraising and how people think about it and how we move that forward. What year was that, if I may ask? Well, I completed it in 2005. Okay. I actually started it when I was 47 years old. And I met with the woman who would become my advisor, Becky Rubin. And I said, oh my gosh, this will take seven years to do this. I don't know. And she said, Bill, how old are you going to be in seven years if you don't do it? I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting. So I said to her, how about I continue taking classes for several years and then I'll officially apply for the program, you know, after a couple of years to see if I really enjoy it or not. And she allowed me to do that, which was great. Oh, certainly. I I mean, 05, I mean, I guess grad school for fundraisers was probably just starting to be a thing in 2005, would you say? Yeah, the Lilly School, uh, now I think the Lilly Family School at uh, Indiana University, yes. uh, IUPUI mm-hmm. in Indianapolis, was probably the first, I think, to have the doctorate. Now there's several out there, but I think it's absolutely great. 
No. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your dissertation. What what sort of research did you do? Well, I started, Tom, thinking that I would study what makes for a great fundraiser. Yes. And it actually I kind of shifted mid-part uh, partway through and decided that it was more important to look at how do donors, prospects, decide if they are going to make a gift or not. So I read lots of psychology, lots of sociology, and really came across some great work by some psychologists, including a fellow by the name of Ajahn, A-J-Z-E-N. He created something called the theory of planned giving. And his idea was that people um, decide to do something. Okay, well, that sounds fine. And then the question becomes, what's what are the precursors to that decision? And he did the research and decided that there were actually three precursors to a decision. So the first one being the attitude towards the decision and the action, the behavior. Two, what do other people who are important to you think about your taking on that behavior? And third, do you think you could really do it? And this has been shown to prove whether people will, or predict whether people will, oh, give blood, for instance, or whether boys will wear condoms, whether women will do breast exams, whether people will um, recycle. So let me give you a quick example. All right, giving blood. Yeah, I'd like to give blood. Okay, great. I want to make the decision to give blood. So I'm going to check those three elements. The attitude, oh, giving blood? Yeah, you know, I might need blood someday. That's a great idea. Okay, sure. Two, how will people who are important to you think about your giving blood? Oh, you know, they're going to give me a sticker to wear. Everybody at the office knows is going to know that I'm a blood donor, that I care about other people, and I'm going to be able to tell my mother. <laughs> I'm going to get bonus points, you know, better Christmas presents. And three, do you think you can really do it? Well, uh, wait a minute. Do, do they use do, do they use needles? I, I can't do needles. So that person obviously is not going to get blood because they can't get over that third hurdle. What I found in my research is that those three conditions also make sense from how people cognitively make a decision to give or not. And we did that by showing videos of uh, different appeals, fundraising appeals. Uh, we did a measurement beforehand. They filled out a survey before and after, and we you know, gave them money to say thank you. And then we let them give the money away to the organizations that they liked, or they could keep it. So we found out that, of course, people check their attitude towards actually making the gift. They think about what others will think about them making that gift, and they figure out if they can do it, if they can afford it, if they can make payments, whatever that is. We added one other wrinkle, and that was people think emotionally as well as cognitively. Hmm. So went ahead and measured their emotional responses as well to determine which emotions positively and which emotions negatively affected their decision-making process. 
it was really fascinating and and uh, I really enjoyed it a great deal. So the uh, the proper name for the dissertation, um, in case you want to look it up, yeah, you need some nighttime reading. Um, <laughs> is is the cognitive and emotive processing of altruistic requests? Oh, that's great. Now I think back. I I used to work right. with dentists, as as you well know, and many dentists. Um, didn't necessarily have a very fun experience <laughs> in dental school. I, I recall one one dentist who shall remain unnamed actually uh, starting oh, wow. to, to to cry when I asked him if his child would be following yeah. him in his career, and and with with tears in his eyes he said, "I would never let my child wow. go through that." The, the the poor man was really yeah. wounded by his experience, and so, but to your point. The, the way that I was often able to get those alumni to seriously consider making a gift was to ask them, don't you wish when you were a student that some graduate, some alumni came alongside of you to make your experience better? Nice. And, and none of them said no to that. All of them said, well, yes, I really do. Uh, and and that allowed us to then say, well, well, you know, if someone were to mentor you, someone were to make a scholarship gift, those sorts of things, or give you resources to improve your education, um, that would have made a difference, wouldn't it? And they said, well, of course it would. And then that that opened the door to begin saying, well, this is your chance. This is your chance to be that for one of our dental students. And oh, by the way, we treat our students <laughs> so much better because our our faculty went through the same things you did. So, um, yeah, but, but it, it really did start with uh-huh. that empathy piece. Right. Yeah. For them. That's a wonderful really. way uh, to approach things. And you made it very personal. You, you brought out an opportunity for them to deal with emotions and thinking. That, that was great. I, I'm curious, Bill. I know that different, different fundraisers have different takes on some of these questions involving you know, how do you approach a donor? There are, I've, I've heard some very educated, even, you know, folks that have doctoral degrees say that if you ask a donor for too much, mm-hmm. you're going to turn them off. And so you don't want to do that. I've heard other fundraising gurus, uh, or self, self-described fundraising gurus also say, well, you can never ask a donor for too much. Uh, it's going to be fine. Where do you fall down on that? What, what do you think? I think that there's an opportunity usually um, with the donor to ask them what's the right amount and and have that conversation. And, you know, I might say something along the lines of, Tom, I don't want to be presumptuous here. I mean, personally, I'd love to have you fund this at a million dollars, but I have a feeling that that's not the right level for you. Tell me, what's the right level yeah, yeah. for us to ask you for a gift? Now. And, and yeah, sometimes they may lowball, but that's all right. You know, maybe we get the first gift and we get them involved and then we get the second one. Well, let me ask you, I, I know I've read some research in the past. I, I can't remember where or when, but uh-huh. it, it suggested that in decision-making processes that a lot of times, I think it would even argue all the time, that decisions are made with the emotions and then the brain mm-hmm. rationalizes the emotional decision. Did you find mm-hmm. that to be the case? 
I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, Daniel Kenneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N, who got a Pulitzer Prize as an economist, by the way, wrote a wonderful book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Very approachable, very easy to read. Great examples in the book. I highly recommend it. And what he suggests is that, yes, if we have to think through something that's difficult, we will actually be cognitive. But if we have something that's rote, that's easy, well, then we kind of rely on our subconscious. That's a slightly different view of subconscious versus conscious, which I think is parallel in some ways, or at least they overlap, if you can think of a Venn diagram, with the emotional versus the rational. But certainly the emotional influences the rational. That's been demonstrated pretty pretty clearly. So with all this research you've done, um, I'm curious to know how it's impacted the way you approach fundraising. Great, great question. Um, well, it's been a couple of things. So uh, I'm going to pull on the research from uh, my advisor, uh, Becky Rubin, here for just a minute. I think that people bring a, a, a disposition a predisposition to the fundraising equation, the process, okay? And that predisposition are things like culture, how you were raised, your age, your generational differences, those kinds of things, okay? So we have a predisposition. And one might say, if you look at the seven faces of philanthropy and those seven things, that they're a predisposition. The authors call it, uh, motivations. I don't think it is. I think it's a predisposition. So they bring that. But then we have we have motivation, and that motivation is probably based on empathy, mm-hmm. right? Is based on wanting to change something. But we have to look at what else is going on in their lives to see, you know, how that all fits in. How does this um, appeal fit in? And then the third element is that decision-making process, okay, that I talked about with my dissertation, or you can look at Kahneman or others as well. So how have those affected me? When I approach somebody, and let's say I'm approaching a new person, I do a little bit of trying to understand their predispositions. How were they raised? What culture are they from? What generation are they? And, and find out how they feel about philanthropy in general. Then I look for, secondly, that middle step. I look for motivation. I look for, for what's, uh, what's their passion, you know, what's really important to them. And then third, I can go ahead and help them with decision-making by providing them information that's helpful. In the case of my research, I would pro- test to find out what their attitude is about making the gift. Gee, Tom, you know, I'm not asking you today, but I'm kind of curious, you know, what's your your thought on our raising or, or funding this particular project through philanthropy? Yeah. I'd ask those kinds of questions to find out attitude. Then secondly, oh, well, you know, if you were to make a gift, who would you want us to notify? 
Or who would you want to ask you for that gift? Yes. And then third, is this is it possible that you can afford this gift? Do we need to do um, payments? Do we need to have a pledge? Um, can we help you with your financial advisor? All those kinds of topics would be in that final, can you get it done? So yes, my my asking has gotten much more complicated as I've gotten older, <laughs> as I've had more experience, because I consider many more factors where 40 some years ago, when I was first asking, I just focused on, oh, if I could just find the right words, you know, yes, I'd have the golden ticket. I sure would love that golden ticket if you find one. Well, Bill, I'm afraid we've run out of time for this episode, but we are so looking forward to having you back next week to hear about the advantages of AFP membership, as well as some more tips and techniques you've developed along the way. I'm your host, Tom Dauber. Thank you for joining me on this journey to major gift mastery on the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast.